Welcome to this very special episode of Cutting Edge Web Content Development. Today, we're going to revisit some of the best insights from our Cutting Edge guests this year, highlighting the things you might have missed that could change your web content development game. First up are Stephen Falsing and Tony Bartoli from Bonfire LA, who helped us to understand the interaction of content and development strategies for good SEO. Let's listen in. So we talked a little bit about this idea of you know content strategy for SEO. We talked a little bit about how it needs to be authentic. We talked about good development strategy, you know, following Google's guidelines there. How do you get these two to connect? Does one go before the other? And, you know, how do you make those two align so that they're more effective? I think they kind of go in parallel. You can define that. Said it's also from a project's perspective, I like, are we building a website from the ground up? Are we integrating with an existing site? Things like that will we'll kind of play into, especially the technical part of it. What's the current setup? What's the current platform? What's been integrated? Is it being leveraged correctly or not? Versus, oh, we're building something from scratch. Great. Well, we're going to build it to all the best practices. So from a process and procedure you know, and standpoint, that can vary. But they really go hand in hand, right? I mean, content development is, hey, well, it's an ongoing process, and it's a creative and subjective process. It is subject to a lot of different things in terms of you know, project-specific parameters around like, oh, well, this has to be approved by marketing, or this has to be approved by legal, or this has to go through product or what have you. So those sort of processes, it's hard to just track, you know, hey, this has to get created here, this has to be created there. We're working with a client now who they're just starting out but they've got a ton of blog content. Great. So what we're doing right now is working with them on their blog content, ensuring that it's optimized against the keywords that they want while we're building their website, which is relatively straightforward and it's very content focused. So we're going to get all that in. The website part is relatively simple because it's a straightforward site. The content part now is taking a little bit more time. It's like, okay, let's really nail what are your keywords? What are the ones that are going to work? And what are we going to test? So they kind of go hand in hand. They're not decoupled necessarily, but you can kind of like, okay, it depends on where the client is. Like, we don't have any content. We're working on it. Well, we can still build the site with the thought process in place around here's how the content's going to be structured. This is what our goals are. This is what kind of company we are. We're e-commerce. We sell phone cases. Great. Okay. Well, we can do research and strategy around what we want to do content-wise there. We know how to build that from a website, e-commerce, structured data, schema perspective. So the containers are all there, for lack of a better word, as they're figuring out the content. Kind of it's wherever you're at, you know, in the process. So that's that'd be my take on it. Anyway, Tony, you you have any other ideas? I think in two, you know, if it's an established industry, the SEO tools that are off the shelf tools are able to look into sort of competitor the, the competitor use of SEO, SEM rankings to give you a starting place too. If this is brand new from scratch in an, an existing industry, it does make sense to look and see what's already existing out there to understand. And that gives you an insight into what exactly people are searching for to look for this type of business. I found it's interesting. What usually happens is marketing tends to drive you know, a project forward for some business objective they're trying to accomplish whether it's leads or sales or something like that. And so they'll generate content. They typically tend to hand it off to developers of the technical side and say, 
go do this, go SEO this, <laughs> whatever terminology they want to use. To them, it becomes a black box. They know what they want, but they don't know how to articulate. They don't know what they don't know from the technical side of things. And I found if there's a good mix where the technical side can explain in some simple terms, because remember, this is just marketers, simple terms, here's the things that you're going to want to look for to make this easier to optimize from a technical standpoint. You know, things like schema, you know, can you call out to us the purpose of this data in here? Or can we as developers create fields that your content creators can then populate and say, oh, yeah, I need to have my hours in here or I need to put in my ratings here, whatever those things are. So it's almost like there has to be a, some kind of connection there. I don't know if it's an alignment. I don't know if it's developers educating the marketing side. Here's what you need to do. That's why I asked, and it was interesting to hear your perspectives on that. As far as you know, software and tech go, what effect do they have on SEO? Is there any effect what software you use or tech you have or framework you build in? In terms of like web frameworks and website frameworks? Or software, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, 50% of the web is WordPress. I think that still holds today. You know, and there's a lot of plugins that are built for WordPress. Some of them work better than others, but it's a well-known, well-supported platform and it works well for certain types of websites. We're building a lot more now with headless CMSs. There's a lot of, of a move away from kind of the opinionated CMSs like WordPress into more of the SaaS style ones, like Butter CMS. We build a lot with Butter. And there's a lot of hoops involved with utilizing kind of the plugins in WordPress. And so have, using headless CMSs, SaaS-based CMSs, it allows for more robust and custom integration. The work that we've done with Butter and the custom CMS component we built for Butter, uh, not CMS, right, but the custom SEO component we built for Butter. So Antonio, you want to expound on that a little bit? Yeah, and it, it's been a game changer really for us to the move to headless CMSs like Butter in that we're able to build best practices directly into the stack. So no more relying on sort of plugins that are piecemeal and not quite there. And because we're measuring what we see the impact is at Google, where we can see directly the uh, result of that. And the other thing to take into account too is that performance is an SEO indicator. It is a level. And so with PHP, the sort of older style of stack websites like WordPress, you have to do a lot to get performance such that Google will appreciate and think that this is the right site to send their customers to have their questions be answered, right? Because if the site is slow, especially on mobile, they will be more likely to recommend something else. So headless CMS and a JavaScript-based front end gives us, you know, the 100% performance mark that you're looking for. It's not always wise to chase lighthouse numbers in those types of numbers, but to have the performance be instant load, especially on mobile, is a significant SEO signal, if you will. And again, to be able to build best practices directly into the stack, headless CMS like Butter is a key piece of that. Tony, yeah, thanks for bringing it up. Because that is a key thing is that we talk a lot about developing content. We talk about the technical implementations of SEO. But yeah, Google ranks other things even than just that, but like something like site performance, the fact that your site needs to load fast. And that's good user experience, right? It, Google is leveraging metrics around user experience to uprank or downrank web content. And so the faster, more efficient your website is, the better, which 
sometimes, you know, comes into conflict with the desire to have a really pretty website with a lot of really big, huge images or video or things like that. And so you have to find a balance, right? But you could have a plain text website that'll launch really fast, (laughs) won't look particularly good. So you have to find that balance. Another thing that Google uses is ADA compliant and which is top of mind for some clients, but not top of mind for others. And, you know, I had that conversation yesterday with a client who is, what if we tried these other color combinations? I'm like, well, that's not going to rank very well on ADA compliance. And like, well, that's kind of not our target market. I'm like, well, if the Google cares and you guys care a lot, you know, they've talked a lot about SEL. I said, Google cares about that in their search rankings. And they went, oh, okay, well then let's care about that. And so it's not one thing, you know, SEO is not just keywords, right? It's a holistic structured strategy around the way your website is built maintained, and then your content is developed and implemented. Next, let's head back to Justin J.B. Butler of Consumer 51 to explore the notion of finding the complete narrative across multiple channels. This idea of the complete narrative, this is something you're deeply passionate about. Can you share what this concept means to you and why it's so important today? Yeah, certainly. So the idea is that we all live within a narrative right? We all follow a a narrative that we have, an internal narrative that drives us in our day-to-day. As marketers, what our goal is, is to insert ourselves in that narrative so we become part of their path, right? We become part of their journey in their day-to-day. And at some point along their day, they're going to interact with our brand and we want them to become customers. So the complete narrative starts to feed into this idea of where do we derive our influences for the narrative that drives us internally? And when we say complete narrative, that's because there are so many factors that incorporate into that that we actually have access to as marketers. So when we start to think about, even in our, when we start our day, right? We wake up in the morning, once upon a time, maybe we, we looked outside, we went, got some coffee, we went, sat at the table, we opened the newspaper. Now it's not quite like that. We go and we grab our phone. As soon as we open our phone, we go on to Apple News and we read an article about whatever may the news company may be giving us. We then go on to social media. We go on to Instagram to see what our favorite influencers are telling us about their ideas. We then go to Facebook and we see what grandma's doing or we see what our best friend's baby did that morning, right? And then we, we move over to Snapchat and we, we start to see some of those clips. And then we move on to Twitter and we see what the latest politician is feeding us. And so we start to see there's so many avenues before we even get to that coffee that is influencing us in our day-to-day, right? We go out in the world, we see all these billboards, we turn on the radio, we look at the TV, we, and even when we see TV, right? We don't just turn on and flip through some channels. We now have all these different streaming services that are feeding us so many different messages and narratives. The complete narrative is the concept of being able to understand your user's journey throughout their day and being able to put yourself and your story and the narrative that you're trying to create about your brand in each step of that way. So you create a complete narrative about what it is you're trying to promote. Yeah, absolutely. JB, give a piece of tactical advice to someone who may be hearing this and saying, all right, I get the idea. It's important to have the complete narrative across these multiple channels What's a piece of tactical advice they could start to do right now to start planning for that, to maybe make a step in that direction? My first piece of advice is stop marketing to yourself. Stop talking to yourself. Most people out there, most clients that I get, and I've worked with a lot of businesses that range almost every industry, the first thing that I typically notice is you've been talking to yourself this whole time. 
So first step is stop talking to yourself. And the second step is start talking to your audience. Before you start marketing to them, start talking to them. And what you should be saying is, tell me about yourself. You should be asking questions. What influences you? Tell me how your day-to-day is sculpted by the decisions you make and why do you make those decisions? And in that conversation you're having with them, you have to listen. You have to listen carefully because true marketing, good Effective marketing starts with empathy. And if you have that empathy of of your audience, and empathy is not sympathy, it's not just an understanding of why they do what they do. It's a true feeling of, of knowing what it's like to be them, what it's like to be triggered or inspired or motivated in one direction or another. That empathy, if you start there, you start with that deep understanding of your audience everything else will start to make sense. You'll start to know where they're at. You'll start to know how to talk to them. You'll start to know what sort of pieces you need to put in that mix to influence them in the direction you want them to go. It has to start with a conversation where you do more listening. Now we revisit Sam Sayer of D-Type to explore the importance of user experience in the digital world and how to keep it front and center in your design processes. Can you map out like what that process is of figuring out and for maybe for one of your clients recently, how you figured out what the user wanted and then implemented that in your digital design? Profiling does get tricky. It depends on what the client's doing, right? What are they offering? If they are in real estate, if they're a letting agent, estate agent, where are they in the market? Are they bottom, middle, high, super high end? If they're super high end, people will probably want more of a concierge service than just, you know, they're going to have their people look for these things on the site. So actually, while they're the, the end client, they're not necessarily the people who get interrupted on the site. This was quite an interesting one, really. And we need to appeal to the end client, but actually there's going to be something a little bit in the middle. There's certain things we can look at in terms of market. Sorry, sectors, shall I say. Sectors, that these on start, but also in terms of what their services are within that. So not all real estate agents are built equal, shall we say. You know, they'll have different strands that they'll focus on. So we'll often dial right back to, okay, let's talk money, right? Because that's what it all comes down to. What brings you the most profit? Or what's your bread and butter? What's going to be your constant? Make sure we focus on those two avatars. Because they might have many avatars that we might work with many people. But actually, what's going to keep your bottom line going? And what's going to be the profitable work? So we'll come back to there. I mean, you can have three, four, you have many customer avatars for a business, but focusing on those two, I think is really, really key because that's going to speak in the numbers. I think one of the things that I've seen, especially in the CX world, that's pushed a lot to try to help create process to this journey is using these tools. And so a lot of the big vendors out there, you know, push this idea of the DXP. So this digital experience platform. You know, we work in the world of CMS, so it's very closely related there. You know, tools you use to create these experiences. Have you found that uh, either a DXP or CMS, these tools are able to help or make it more difficult to accomplish your processes as a user experience designer? They can be, yeah. I think people work a different way. Some people are very visual. Some people really need the detail. Not necessarily directly related to this point, but we use client portals for a web project. So that breaks down all the stages of the project. So here's your proposal. Here's a link to it. We need this. We need X, Y, and Z from you. We've got dates against it. So you can see any point, we've got a tracker. So you can see where we're at with the site. So any given point, the client can go into their portal, 
see what we've done, see what there's the leaders of them as well. It's always a, it's a two-way street with any process. That's been really, really helpful to give people one point of reference to look and say, yeah, go and check out your portal. We used to email, oh, I can't remember if I sent you this. Well, if it's not ticked off on the portal, we haven't got it. So that, I think that was really powerful. And I think, you know, giving people that kind of dashboard, that digital dashboard is, is really key. Don't make people ask for things. Show them it's there. It's a shared piece. Here we go. Here's everything for you to look at whenever you're ready to as well. And I think that's just a slightly different tangent. In people don't work nine to five necessarily anymore. A busy business owner might be checking things at 9 p.m. Where about that project? Oh, right. I need, to email, I need to email someone or annoy someone with a WhatsApp. I can look at my portal and there's this snapshot. Brian Gerstner from White Label IQ is up next. He helped us to create harmony between developers and creatives. Let's hear what he has to say. Okay. Walk us through one of these meetings because this really could help others in a situation where they're trying to create this harmony between their code and their content. Walk us through one of these meetings Let's say it's the very first meeting you're getting the creative staff to meet together with your developers Mm -hmm. and you're trying to hash out what this project's going to be like. Are there certain things you always do in those meetings or things that make it work better? A little hard for me to say because I come from a design background, but the, the key thing is content has to lead. It's all about the story. So content leads. It has to. I mean, we're not... It's not a thing. It's not a website. You're selling an experience. You're, I mean, people don't make purchases rationally. People are not rational beings. We're emotional, okay? And it's through the stories that you can really start to connect. And be it website, be it video, be it the content itself or the high interaction, you're just telling that story. So, I mean, if at the very beginning, the key thing is that story's got to be clear. You got to be able to tell it. People have to understand it. They have to know what the brand is, what the experience is about. And once you get that, you know, then people can contribute easily. And you can really kind of iterate and riff off of that. But that's the one thing I would say, like, and as I said, I'm a designer, so it took me a while to learn this, but like content has to lead. It's all about the story. Great piece there. Now, do you ever have problems with those who are building out the content in the code getting that story? Does it take any kind of work or do they usually just pick up on it really quickly? Usually they pick up quickly. So it's a process. So, and, and you got to trust the process. So with the story, even before you get to the code, you've got to work with design. Okay. And design has to really kind of create that experience. But design may not know what they can do. They don't know their limits. And sometimes you're going to exceed your limits. You know, hey, I've got this cool idea. And like, yeah, that's about a million dollars. Yeah. It's really important to Bring key players to the table early on. Let people test ideas, but trust the process. You know, content leads with the story. Bring it to design. Let your designers go. Let them have a lot of ideas, but bring developers in. Get the check. Get the ideas. Plan it. And then move forward into development. Once you get into development, then it's important to go back and check and make sure that the experience that's coming forward really is coming to life the way it was expected. Are there certain processes that the developers need to own once that story is led and understood? Isn't it a lot is just really understanding exactly what it needs to be done. By the time it gets to development, it needs to be clear. The developers need to be able to contribute to say, what can be done? How can we do it? What's the effort and impact that's going to have? But by the time it gets to the development team, Depending on how large it is, it should be fairly well understood. It should be 
clear of what's trying to be accomplished. And a lot of that is, once again, content and design, being able to take to the development team like, and be able to describe what it is that they're doing. Because if, if you hand it off half-baked, you're not going to get what you wanted. And the development team is there to really make it come to life. That's where the things in the browser start moving. You start to see the animations, the movement. You start to be able to kind of interact and even get like that personalized data to come back to you. I mean, it's even as simple as to think about like an e-commerce site. As I go in, what is my user journey? Who is the person when they're coming in? What are they doing? And then if you can then validate that all the way through to development, you can pull it off. But almost anything's possible with enough time and budget. So when we talk about making those ideas and making the content come to life, that is key, time and budget. And your developers are going to have a really a lot of input at that point. I think some of the issues that teams run into, besides what you've laid out clearly here of having people at the table in the beginning, story leading, and then bringing in your code people early on so they can contribute, is that you're kind of... Uh, saddled with particular processes or technologies that may kind of inhibit that free creativity that's necessary to have this kind of connection you're talking about. A lot of times in situations where I've been in, it's there's this existing way of doing things. And here's what you've got to work with. Yeah. Or here's what we've got in our tech stack. You got to build it within these constraints. And a lot of times that really limits both sides. So as far as when you come up, I'm sure you've come up against this in a project where there's been some kind of limitations there and you've had to work with those. How do you flesh those out, kind of give people the option so they can either decide to change it or, or stay where they're at? First of all, I'd like to make the same. Like true creativity comes from limitations. If there's no limitations, it's just kind of free form. But it's great too, don't get me wrong. But like limitations are what really forces you to be creative. So, I mean, if those limitations really are there, okay, then I would just say you got to up your game a little bit. You've got to really kind of try to approach this in a more creative way. And maybe it's not even, maybe it's just keeping it simple. But I truly feel like the limitations shouldn't be able to really limit you too much. I mean, I'm saying that in like a generalized way, but there's a lot of ways to tell the story. That's why as a creative, you're there. You're there to be able to, and maybe this, if you're limited by technology and the technology stack or the budget, just tell a shorter story. Tell something with more impact. Tell it less is more, maybe. You don't have to go into a grandiose chapter level experience. Two, all, all of your consumers in the digital areas and the webs, the webs, but uh, I mean, the, they don't have, you don't have a lot of time anyways. So if you keep it simple, you're probably going to have more impact. Yeah, excellent. Simple's hard, by the way. Simple is really hard. Now let's hear from our Use All 5 experts, Troy Zaretsky Craner and Ben Kasem. Troy and Ben are here to break down what it takes to harmonize code and content when working with external clients. Now, one of the big topics we try to hit here often is how do we harmonize code and content? You know, when you're starting out on one of these big projects for, let's say, one of your cultural clients, how do you align those two, kind of the code of what's possible and the creative of also what's possible? How do you make sure that those both get a seat at the table? It's a big challenge. I think we try to work closely with the client and then their development team or our development team just so to get all the people on board at the beginning and understand everyone's unique needs. And sometimes you find out 
some bumps along the road along the way, but one larger project's not live yet, so I can't say, but one larger art museum we were working with had a unique challenge where the code and the content. So how do we merge these? Because they have a big archive of artistic works and that's already there and they don't want to tear it up. So how do we build around that? And it was really sort of digging into their archival practices and then also getting to know their archival team and their needs. A lot of times in arts and culture, the budgets are a bit smaller, the teams are a bit smaller, the resources are smaller. So we had to do something that would be lower maintenance and they wouldn't have to re-upload all of this content. So we could just sort of almost reskin and reorganize it, but we couldn't add or subtract tags. We couldn't change the way that the artworks were labeled. So I think it's just really getting to know all of the stakeholders' needs and finding a system that works with their unique situation, which was just limited to deal with that. I was going to say something that we've noticed over time too is, you know, institutions move a little bit slower. There's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. You have directors, you have curators, you have board members. You have, there's a lot of people who have an important say on how the institution or organization operates. And so identifying the stakeholders like really early on and kind of creating an affinity group, which is like a smaller group within that stakeholder group where we are more day-to-day with them and they are we're kind of aligned and like in communication very closely so that's super important in the beginning like identifying who that affinity group is and it could be only like two people maybe on the client's end and they see the work we do sooner they help us kind of like sell in whatever we're doing to their bigger team and they like liaison without having these big meetings where all these big stakeholders are there and they're like, how did we get here? Or like not catching those like, you know, gotchas that they have. Like sometimes in the past, and luckily with this doesn't really happen anymore, but you know, you're in your second or third round of design, all of a sudden a stakeholder comes in who we didn't know is part of the process and like tables things. They're like, throws a curveball. They're like, oh, wow. Well, there goes all that work. Have you ever had within that kind of affinity group you're talking about, People who are going to be the end users who are going to be uploading the content, kind of maintaining the site after you design it, do they ever come in and kind of give you requirements or requests? You're nodding your head. So that is something that happens. Yeah, definitely. They do. And they're usually involved, like they're identified as one of the stakeholders. Someone will also interview too. Early on, we're a big fan of interviewing our clients and the people who are actually, you know, using the CMS and figuring out what their pain points are, what is maybe working already for them that they're like, don't touch that. Or, you know, what are those sensitive production needs? So we definitely want to get them looped in as soon as possible. Next, let's take it back to Rodo Orellana of Rocketvan. He dove into taking digital platforms from start to finish. Let's revisit his approach to KPIs and onboarding experiences. When you're, you've launched a project, it's already in the first stage, you know, it's People are interacting with it. What are the KPIs, the key performance indicators that you're looking at to see whether your project or your platform is on track or if you need to make changes? Obviously, that depends on type of product. But we seeing, you know, the using different techniques like heat maps, you know, to see where the people are discovering parts and everything. We're doing the QANA testing and see how, you know, they're using our products. And then also, if we had some 
milestones in terms of, you know, we want users to you go and use this path, checking if it's really happening. If it doesn't, it depends on the product again. So for instance, in the, the sports one, we want to use the pickup games as a, the core value of, of the platform. So we need to make sure that people, they're using it. The only way is to put it in front of the users and engage them, trying to convince them, you know, not convince them, but trying to, for them to use them and see how often they're using it, because that will be the core differentiator from any other platform that we've seen. It's always, you know, coming back from the aims. So, so we're matching what we, the intentions that we wanted, you know, why you want to do that. And one of the functionalities, it was, I mean, it was created by this, those wise. Then we need to match and see, you know, this is happening. And sometimes you are wrong and that's how things are, you know, happening. But usually if they don't, they really research beforehand. That's something that we don't do. But we're encouraging them to have, you know, before the wires and all the personas and everything, they should have done their marketing research in terms of, are you going to create this platform? Are you going to sell those products or services? Is it people out there, they're willing to use it at least? And then obviously if they want to pay and that comes from the business part that again, we are not into, but it's very important because it gives you, you know, the wise and then you build all the platform. I don't know if it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. So you set some milestones, you look to see if you're achieving those, and then you use various you know, data sources to be able to tell how well it's being used and then make changes from that. So this brings up another important question, which is when you do launch something and you're expecting people to use this new platform, how do you effectively implement user onboarding to really help people know how they should use the platform, make sure they come back to it? What are ways that you develop out that onboarding, that first experience? There are different techniques. Actually, it depends, again, on the product. If it's a software that's a SaaS service, usually, you know, the tooltips and navigation of, you have here your medical records, coming back to the example that we were, you know, from the pregnancy records. You have here your records, here the blood test. Here you have the background data from the patient. You have the partner's data, the scans here all this stuff here. So because we know that those guys, they are professionals, they're using different software, but pretty much they know they need to have those boxes in there. The only thing is like, we need to show them where. When it comes from different users, they never use a software. So we can't do a series of videos with a presenter and doing the step-by-step. -step. If it's a bit more complicated in terms of we have different levels of layers of the information, where to find them. So it, the best way is to create a set of videos where you have a presenter that goes through everywhere. And then we chop it up in themes. Like here you have, for instance, coming back to the sports, for instance, like here you can create your own pickup games. You can invite your friends or you can open it only for everyone. Set it out the minimum people, which sport you're going to be, where it's going to happen, time, everything. So explaining them. This is very powerful because we, you know, as a human being, we learning by imitation. So if you're having them, someone explaining them in a short, that's what I learned, you know, new TikTok generation, you need to keep it short, short and very, very easy. And then you can have a version that if you, someone wants to stop and play up and down, you can do it. But my advice always is more capsules and tool tips is the best. Then you have the gamification. That's one of the most funniest, but is more complicated. And it gives a next layer of features on your system, whether it's a mobile app or a web app platform. I'm sure you've been using was they 
giving you rewards, points, or, you know, badges, and well done. You just, it's very encouraging because it, it makes you, you discover more, but it's more complicated because you need to over-engineer your, your platform. Not over-engineer, but you have another layer. So you need to be careful because at the end of the goal is people need to use it. But it's good to know that they, are, they have different techniques to the onboarding. You need to understand which is the purpose, also which version we are. If we're testing the waters, who is going to be in front of the, if it's early adopters, they are more curious, they want to discover more. So it would be easier if just the pull tips or something like that. If it's general public and people, anyone needs to use it. So maybe the explanatory and have a kind of academy videos is advisable to help. Rami Aboud of Arch Web Design is here to remind us what makes for a successful website redesign. So for somebody who's, for instance, they've had their site around for a while, maybe they've had some success. How do they determine I have a good product market fit and now I'm ready to kind of do these redesigns like you're talking about? It's all about the revenue. Are people buying it? It depends on your goals. Like there's no magic number. It depends on the product and price point and all that. But, you know, if people are buying the product, that is how you can figure out that you have the right PMF or product market fit. Once there's some revenue coming in, yeah, that's a good indicator that you know people are need the product. Yeah, all right. Any other things from a strategy perspective when you're first working with one of these site redesigns that you might give us? I have a ton. I'll give out three here. Uh, just I don't want to take up you know three hours of everyone's time. But the second one would be the onboarding flow. So. There's a stat out there, I believe it's 71% of users actually leave during the onboarding. So that's a huge chunk of your users that are leaving. So in a nutshell, what you want to do is you want to make the onboarding quick and simple, and you want to help the user bring their stuff into your product. Okay, so you want to make sure the onboarding doesn't take too long. You want to make sure they set up the app in their dashboard and provide help and support during the onboarding if they get stuck. For example, Slack is a good one. That's a really good example. So with Slack, during their onboarding, you can actually invite your teammates and create channels right in the onboarding so that once the onboarding is done, you're ready to go. So you have the teammates in there, you have the channels made, and now you can just start using the product. That's a great example of good onboarding. And it's very simple and intuitive. So tweak your onboarding flow, revise it, test it with your users. I think that's going to really help with revenue. Yeah, I was just wondering from a standpoint, does sometimes SaaS set them up to make it more difficult when they're in the sales page for their onboarding process, maybe either because they don't set expectations correctly or because maybe they overpromise, could be. So there's kind of a question there as far as you're creating that content ahead of that onboarding phase. What content do you want to give them to make sure that they have a successful onboard? So I don't know if there's something, there's a connection there. It's a great point. And another thing that just came to mind is something we found that works well as well is. You know, you get them onboarded and ready to go. And then you have offer a drip campaign. So every day, let's say you send out an email teaching them a new feature or how you can better use the app. Like, let's say you're a CRM, like, hey, here's an example of, you know, one of our clients who made $25,000 last month through our email campaigns or something like that. So if you just keep providing value through a drip campaign or through whatever means, then, you know, showing them how they can use your product to make money that typically lends to lower churn in your users. So any other things you want to talk about on the strategy side? Otherwise, we'll switch into tactical. Sure. I'll give you just two more quick ones. So number three, provide solutions, not features. 
A lot of people do this. So you want to talk about the solutions and the benefits and not just the features, the tech specs, basically. Like, let's say you're going to buy a new iPhone, right? You don't care if it has a 12 megapixel front camera. That would be a feature. You care that it takes great selfies. So that would be a benefit or solution. So the way you can action this in your website is turn the featured pages into solutions pages. So that's a quick tip there. And then last one I'll give here, I promise, above the fold. So this one is super actionable as well. So above the fold is basically anything you see before you start scrolling on the homepage. Make sure you have your killer offer in there, which we discussed. Make sure you have two calls to action, okay? One right underneath the offer and one in the nav bar, which most people do, but I want to make sure that's in there. And then the last thing you want to have is some sort of social proof, again, above the fold before people start scrolling. So logos of clients you've worked with, testimonials, things like that. Make sure that's all above the fold. That's all I'll give for today, I promise. (laughs) That's good. We'll switch to tactical. So you have a passion for conversion rate optimization, for trying to improve conversion rates. What would you talk to in that vein? So basically, what we specialize in is making marketing websites for SaaS companies, okay? So what's the point of marketing is to get more users, all right? So basically, every tip that I just shared with the goal of increasing your conversion rate. So everything I mentioned has that goal in mind. And everything we do from a design perspective to a research perspective to copy has a common goal of turning those visitors into leads and then eventually users on your homepage or your website. So for doing on SaaS conversion rate optimization, you know, you talked about from the homepage, you know, some of the things that could help with conversion rate. Are there any other typical spots to a SaaS website that usually you, you focus on first when doing a redesign? Again, big topic here. I would say the most important thing before we do anything is market research. Researching what the users want and then crafting the messaging to give it to them. So it encompasses the entire website. So that goes from the design framework, which is, you know, what sections are on each page, what order are they in, how should they be designed in order to have the best user experience and optimize for conversions, to the site architecture. So site architecture is what pages are on your website, aka the sitemap, and also how you organize the pages, how the nav bar looks and how easy it is to go from one place to another, or basically how users can find information and be educated about your product. And then all the way down to messaging. So the messaging or the copy on the website, again, super important, one of the most important convergence factors on there. Our penultimate flashback is Mark Probert of Nuicon, who explains composable architecture. If someone is starting to look at the tools necessary to begin building a composable site or building content in a composable way, What would be the criteria that they would use to make those selections? I mean, obviously looking at what's available off the shelf, there's a lot of good headless CMSs out there and headless can be applied to all sorts. It doesn't even have to be a CMS these days. It's sort of something you log into on the back end to update the content of your website. But obviously CMS can be used for many things these days and the limitations of a CMS in the old days used to be, well, I have a bit of content, I can edit it and maybe upload an image or something. These days can be far greater than that. And you've got greater power to take control of multiple touch points. 
You might want to take that bit of content and display it in an airport on a big screen. You might want to um, put it on a mobile app. It might be on my kettle. You know, it could be anything. Looking at what's available and thinking again where your roadmap wants to go. Is there a solution out there that fits? If so, that might be a way to go to speed up development. It doesn't restrict you on the front end because you can do whatever you want with modern JavaScript and CSS and HTML5 on the front end. And so as long as you've picked a solution on the back end that's scalable and doesn't restrict you on the front end, then you're the world's your oyster in terms of what you can create. Obviously, picking the right tool is imperative. But sometimes you don't know what the right tool is because you go on a bit of a journey and that's often the nature of innovation and software projects. So it's not easy. But again, that comes back to the very beginning of our conversation about we do clickable prototypes and architecture and things where you kind of blue sky the solution and you might not have any dream in the next five, 10 years of developing some of those things, but at least you've dreamt the future and some of those gotchas you can think when you're choosing your platform or technology stack, you can think, oh yeah, we discussed that one day we might want to do that. Do we care about that right now? Are we willing to take that risk? Or do we want to think this through a little bit more and think maybe we should do something a bit more bespoke at a framework level because we don't want to be restricted by someone else's platform? And sometimes open source platforms are great, but you are sometimes within the realms of their roadmap. And that roadmap might not meet with your product aspirations. So it's checking that you're aligned with the roadmap of that underlying tool or headless CMS or whatever that you pick. Not always easy to do, but do your research. Good advice. Good advice, Mark. Well, let me ask you on a personal standpoint, if you could go back in time to your younger self when you're starting out as a graphic designer, what piece of advice would you like to give your younger self? Yeah, I'd say not to restrict your limitations. You know, I left school and got into graphic design thinking, well, that was going to be my career. I've ended up in technology and business development and design thinking. You know, I I know a fair bit about technology without being a coder because I've been around it for a decade now. So I think back then, my advice would have been, I'm limited to that job role that I trained at college a bit for and did a couple of years apprenticeship for. So just be open-minded, I think, would have been my advice to myself that just because you start here, the world evolves and what was needed from a print designer isn't really needed now. And I, I kind of realized this when even when I was at 18, 20 years old, I said to my boss, this will be automated one day. I'm laying out, I don't know, like a catalog, like a giant jigsaw puzzle. I did do more creative work, but there were times where I was doing what they called artwork, desktop publishing. And really, it was a giant jigsaw puzzle. It was a giant jigsaw puzzle of laying out lots of components on a page. And now we're not far away from being able to chuck the data at it and say to an AI, make the most sensible decisions on this for me and lay it out, or at least get it to a point that it's kind of 80% there and I might refine it from there on in. Yeah, I think. Um, just realizing that nothing stays constant in life. I'm glad that I went on the journey I went on because if I hadn't gone on this journey, I probably would have been obsolete soon. Rounding us out is Paul Seal from Clarkswell, who gave the ins and outs of optimizing the editor experience inside a CMS. You talked about optimization and how that's kind of your passion. Maybe you can talk about how you got into 
looking to optimize the editor experience in CMSs? Yeah, so when I was working at the first agency I worked for, we learned about, well, we had our own in-house CMS. A lot of companies have an in-house CMS. And the problem with that was that every time we came to make a change to it, it was a big deal. It wasn't just a change to this particular instance of a website. It was actually to the code base itself, adding these fields and everything. And if you did it for one, you could branch off and do it for this particular one. But if you're doing it for one, you end up doing it for all. It was a big pain. So that was when we looked for a different CMS and we looked and we found Umbraco, which is a open source one. It has a strong community about it and there's the support around it. So that was one of the things about the optimization. It was just so easy to be able to make these sorts of changes, but it's not necessarily to Umbraco itself. It's just to you create these content types and things like that. And you can just easily, if there's a client that wants to add something new to it, you could just add to the content type, make new ones and things like that. So that's the sort of thing that I like to do with the optimization to make things better and easier. So there was a website on my last agency I worked for. They're an Umbraco Gold Partner and they've got a big insurance customer. And this customer has wanted it. They've got a new template design, but they've got an old website. And they know that there's better ways of doing things in Umbraco, but they're just left with this old one. So the approach that I took was to, okay, we can build your website, we can build your template, and you can move your content into the new version but without having to take anything down or anything like that. So we did it all in the development side of things and everything. But we created a block, the way things, you know, like with sections in HTML and things, we created a block editing approach and that's where it's going with Umbraco at the moment and probably other content management systems. It's just a block approach. And we added this block list. So we added it to the existing one, but you can't just stop showing the old template and show the new template, especially because they needed all the content in as well. So the idea was to actually create a query string so that when we got it through development and UAT and what have you, we got it onto live, but we had a query string so that while they were editing, they could take the content that was in all the old properties, put it into this new block list, which is just one field, but just multiple blocks added to it. And they could do that, but they view it with a query string that just said, you know, I don't know, template version equals two or something, and they could see it themselves. And when the time was right, they could switch it over. So now they're using the nice new template. They've got a, a far better editing experience as well with Umbraco with the block list approach rather than individual fields. There's nothing worse than I hate with a field that's called content one and then content two and then, you know, the numbered fields and things like that. Yeah, so we was able to transition them over to that. And so rather than having to do a big rebuild of a site, you can make these improvements to sites by adding these fields and things like that and just just slowly improving it for them without making a massive change to their site. So in your view, what makes a good CMS editor experience? What's the difference between a good experience and maybe it's just an average one? Is it that simplicity? I think it's keeping it simple. It's, I like a good experience for me is to have a preview as well. So to actually be able to see what you're building, it doesn't have to be exactly the same as what it's going to look like on the site. But if you can get some sort of preview, and you, and you can, there are customizations, I know with Umbraco, where you can just have like a preview package added, and now you see what they would see on the front end. So being able to see what you're editing 
and how it's going to look, I think that makes a good editing experience. I said before about fewer clicks as well. Like, if you think, like, how many times do I have to go into this? I have to add, I'll tell you what, I've got a good example from yesterday. We were trying to make a decision. So there was this image tile with a link and also a description could go under that. So that could be optional. And our BA was like, well, actually, the image could be optional. And the title and the, the description, they could all be optional. And we could reuse this for the text tile one as well. And actually, we could use this for the person tile as well, when you added person. And then I was talking about, I was like, well, the thing is that then all you have then is just this generic object. You're just adding, let's say, a tile. And the user, if they needed to create a person, well, they don't know for definite, oh, I need to just add a tile, choose the option to make it a round image, put the title there, that will be the name and everything. So you can make lots of things reusable, maybe reusable in the code and everything, but the person who's editing this, if they've got a really usable, like, now how do I achieve this? Well, if these things were named as, oh yeah, add a person, add an image tile, add a text tile, these are clearly named objects that you can then inherit some of their properties to make that reuse in the development side of things. But it it should be more about the editor and what their experience is like and shortening it for them, not necessarily for you as a developer. Because making just, oh yeah, we could use this on everything. When you make it too generic, it's not a great editing experience, in my opinion. Thank you for tuning into this very special episode of Cutting Edge Web Content Development and for supporting us throughout the year. We'll be back soon with new Cutting Edge insights from the very best in the industry. So don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss out. On behalf of all of us here at Butter CMS, thank you for listening.